Good morning. I'm glad you're all here this morning. Uh, grateful for some friends that came, and uh, uh, nice to see some new faces as well. We're, uh, we're grateful that you've chosen to join us this morning, and uh, pray that this will be a time of real encouragement to you. We've been doing a series through the Psalms, uh, and we've looked at that for a couple of weeks. This morning, what we're going to be looking at, or, or I guess the, the title that I've chosen is, uh, Where to Turn When You Feel Abandoned. And, uh, and the reality is that if you're going to spend your life interacting with human beings, then there's going to be a time when you're going to encounter betrayal and abandonment. It may be actual, it may simply be perceived, but the reality is that we're going to run into that in some way or another. And the reality is that we can usually handle it from, say, people on our street or people at work, because there's not always a lot of investment of ourselves into that particular relationship. But where it, really, where it really hurts, where it really has an impact is, uh, is when it's somebody close to us. Maybe it's a friend, maybe a best friend who turns on us for one reason or another. The worst tends to be at the hands of a person that we are closest to, like a parent or a sibling or a spouse. Some of you here know that gut-wrenching feeling of having someone very close to you betray you or abandon you, and it really turns your world upside down and it leaves scars. And sometimes the thing that is causing you pain in your life has little to do with the humans that you live with, work with, interact with. What do you do when it appears that it's God that is the one betraying you or abandoning you? What do you do when you get that diagnosis of a a serious disease or medical problem? Where do you turn when you lose a spouse or a child? What if everything you've sacrificed for, perhaps even believing that it was God's will and His plan for you, and it comes crashing senselessly down around you? What do you do with all of that? Just over 60 years ago, there were five men, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Ed McCulley, Peter Fleming, and Roger Udarian. They and their families packed up all of their belongings. They said goodbye to their friends and their relatives, and they headed to Ecuador. They believed that God was calling them to reach the Huaroni tribe with the gospel. They were otherwise known as the Alca Indians. They established a base camp uh, in Ecuador. There had been an oil company that had been doing exploration and had a camp there, but they had abandoned that camp because it was so dangerous. This uh, uh, Alka tribe was very violent, and uh, they had lost too many oil workers, and so they abandoned the base that they had set up there. So these folks uh, took over that base and used that to begin with, and they started to make attempts at initial contact with this jungle tribe in September of 1955. They spent several months in interaction, always at a distance. Um, They had developed a process where uh, I believe it was Nate was the pilot, and he he flew a small plane in a very tight circle, and they lowered a rope with a basket at the end, and the weight of that would have kept that in a fairly um, stable position. They lowered gifts to these Alka Indians, and eventually it progressed from giving gifts to receiving gifts as the Alcas placed gifts back in the basket to be hauled back up to the plane. After several months of this, they finally decided to make physical contact. 
the men flew in, landed on Palm Beach, as they named it, along the Kure River, set up shelter, and eventually made contact with a few Alka Indians. They were able to convince them to come into their camp and spend some time with them. Communication was difficult. They were still learning uh, initial phrases, but they were able to share a meal with them, two, two women and one man, and they took the man up in the plane for a short flight. When the Aukas left, the men encouraged them to come back and to bring others. Operation Auka, as they, as they phrased it, was well underway. They waited expectantly for several days. Finally, on day six, two Auka women walked out of the jungle just across the river from their camp. Jim and Pete excitedly jumped into the river and waded out to them, but suddenly realized that something was very wrong. And then they heard a terrifying cry, and they turned to find several warriors standing on the beach with spears raised. Jim had a gun in his pocket, but each of those men had promised to each other that they would never use a gun to kill an Alka who didn't know Jesus in order to save themselves. Within minutes, all five of the missionaries were dead, killed by Alka spears and machetes. Their mutilated bodies washed downriver and were discovered days later. Three years of missionary jungle training. Untold expenses, the personal sacrifice of selling possessions, saying goodbye to family and friends, uprooting and packing and moving to a strange country and starting a strange new life in a foreign land. Why? Why did they do it? because they believed that God was calling them to reach a violent tribal group with the gospel. And now they were all dead before ever sharing the gospel with a single person. Wives made into widows, children made fatherless, parents left grieving for dead sons, and for what? They didn't even get a chance to share the gospel once. God, why? seems so pointless. I personally do not know if the widows of some of these men battled with these questions. I can only imagine that they did. And there are times, or there will come times in our lives, when we will wonder if God has abandoned us by allowing things in our lives which are incredibly heavy to bear that test our faith in Him. What will we do? What should we do when that happens? How will we choose to respond? I'm going to ask you to turn to Psalm 22. If you didn't bring a Bible and you're using one of the Bibles on the table, it would be page 260, page 260 in those Bibles. And if you are new with us this morning and you don't own a Bible of your own, we would invite you to take that Bible home with you. That's our gift to you. The psalmist is David. He's not yet king, and he finds himself in exactly this situation. We can learn much from this psalm about where to find an anchor when it feels like God is allowing our world to be turned upside down. I'm going to start by reading the first 10 verses, and I've subtitled this section, The Psalmist Despairs. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. 
To you they cried out and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. As we read the first part of this psalm, we get a sense of the heart-wrenching agony that the psalmist is enduring at this time. Here's how the New International Version puts the first couple of verses. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? It's clear that the psalmist feels a sense of betrayal by God, that he turned to him in his time of need and God is nowhere to be found. Whatever his dire situation is, it has been made worse by the fact that God is silent or absent, or so it seems. The psalmist continues by describing those things that he knows about God. He reiterates history. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. He says, I don't get it, God. I know you're there. You've always been there. You saved our ancestors. They trusted in you and you showed up. I remember when our David was about a year and a half. We were coming back from a visit to my in-laws in Quebec. And we stopped at a McDonald's along the highway that had a playland. Note to parents with small kids, playlands are breeding grounds for all kinds of nasty infections. Not a good idea. Anyway, that night, as we, got, we were already home, David developed a fever, started vomiting and had diarrhea, and so we took him to emergency. He wasn't taking anything in, and we were getting concerned. He was now dehydrated, so they needed to get some fluids into him through an IV. But his veins were so small, not only because he was little, but because he was dehydrated as well. So they tried both arms more than once with no success, and they finally had to try getting the IV in his little foot. I vividly recall the look on his face during all this. He was terrified. He was sick. He was exhausted. It was late at night. It was a strange place with strange people hovering over him and very close, and they were hurting him with a needle. And the one person, the one person that should be protecting him was instead restraining him so that these strangers could hurt him. His eyes said, Daddy, I trusted you. Why? Why are you letting these people hurt me? Don't you love me? It was one of the many very hard things I would have to do as a father. And sometimes we find ourselves in those positions. The psalmist is crying out with that same kind of confusion. The verses at 4 and 5 blend right into verses 6 through 8. I'm a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. <laughs> he trusts in the Lord. I thought you loved me, cries the psalmist but I must be wrong. I can't be worthy of love. I'm nothing more than an earthworm to you, fit for being stepped on. 
everyone mocks me as a fool for thinking you could love someone like me. And yet I don't get it, he continues in verse 9 and 10. You've been there before. I know you're real. You've already shown yourself to be real and reliable in my past. And you? Ever experienced this kind of crushing despair? Maybe you're here and you're struggling or have struggled with the reality of abandonment. Abandonment by a parent, by a loved one, by a spouse or a child, by an employer. Maybe this is something that you battle on a regular basis, a sense of abandonment. And maybe you came here today knowing you needed God because you just can't do this on your own, and now you hear this. What, you ask? Why is there any point in a relationship with God if he's going to abandon me too? I'd encourage you to hang on. The story's not over yet. And maybe you're here and you have a history with God. You know he's been real in your life before. A history of believing in and relying on his faithful presence. And now it seems like he has looked at you in your pain, in your loss, in your heartache, and he's turned his back on you, just like the others in your life, and he's walked out the door. You've cried out to him, you've begged him, you've pleaded with him, but your prayers seem to go unanswered, and heaven is silent. You feel abandoned, betrayed, and alone. Hang on, keep trusting. Let's see what the psalmist does next. I'm going to take a look at the next block of verses 11 to 21, and I've subtitled this section, The Psalmist Decides. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, be not far off. Oh, you be my help. Come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. There is a turn that occurs in this chunk, this passage. Somebody once said to me when we were going through our difficult time, the teacher is always silent during the test. And that struck me uh, as very powerful. Can you hear the change in this passage? There is a committed decision now to believe that God has not changed, that he is who he has always been, and to choose to trust God despite how things appear. First, he continues to call on God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. You know what the implication is? There is none to help but you. You are the only one, God, that can come through for me on this. He goes on to tell God exactly how he feels. I'm surrounded by those who would do me harm. There is no way out. My situation seems bleak. 
I've lost all hope. Like a bucket of water spills and seeps into the ground, my courage, my stamina have all seeped away. My heart is like a blob of melted wax in my gut. I've got no strength. I feel like I should just give up, just lay down and die. And to be honest, Lord, I feel like you brought me to this point. I'm in pain, in hunger, in shame, in humiliation. Those who surround me expect me to die because they're already negotiating for my clothing. Uh, A week or two ago, Jared explained that in this time, in this day, people didn't have closets full of clothes. They bought an outfit, and it was a significant expenditure. And the fact that there are those that are casting lots for the clothing means they expect this guy won't need it anymore. We'll take it. Might as well not waste a good outfit, right? But, he says, I won't give up. God, please, don't be far off. Don't remain distant. Answer my call. Hurry to my rescue. He keeps on pleading until finally, in verse 21, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. It's the last minute, the 11th hour, we might say. And when all seems lost and the wild oxen are about to gore him with their horns, God answers. Notice that it never records what God's answer was. Only that he did answer. That he did answer. We must always remember that his answer may not be the answer that we expected. But he still calls us to make an active and intentional choice to trust him. Jim Elliott, one of those five missionaries I mentioned at the beginning, he did. He wrote in his journal, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I'm going to read that again. I think it's on the screen behind me. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim understood. He understood that he couldn't keep his life. It wasn't his to keep, and he was willing to give it, to gain something of eternal value. Jim knew that answering God's call to go to the Aka Indians could cost him his life, and it did. But God had called, and he chose to listen and obey. I realized as I was going over this this morning that I had forgotten to share the ending to that story uh, in my sermon. But those men died, and their families went through a period of grieving. But they came back, and they made connections with some of these. It turned out that that one man and the two women that came into the camp originally, that one man was fearful about something else, and so he came back to his camp, and he shared a false story with them about what the missionaries had done. And so the, the warriors came back in vengeance, and that's why they killed them. And afterwards, this was revealed, and some gave their lives to Christ, and then there was, there was a, uh, I guess you would call it a revival, but they weren't, I guess they were dead, and now they were spiritually alive. That tribe came to know Christ as a result of that terrible tragedy, and not only that, but God changed them, because that's what he does. That's his business. He transforms people. He transforms you and I when we give our lives to him. And they were transformed to the extent 
that they now had a desire to go and share the gospel with tribes that they had formerly been at war with. It was an amazing, amazing story. History is full of stories of people who heard God's call to do something, to stand for something, or to stand for Him against the odds, despite the cost. Some were rescued, some were not. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the Old Testament in Daniel, the book of Daniel, they refused to bow down to the golden statue of the king, even though the penalty was to be thrown into a blazing furnace. Their response was this, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. It was a decision they made. They counted the cost, and they said, I will stand for God, no matter what it ends up costing me. Think of Job in the midst of terrible hardship, and he says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And he was truly alone. If you recall what his wife said, his wife told him to curse God and die. And yet he chose to be faithful to God through that. Polycarp was a second century believer. You may or may not have heard of him. And uh, a, a bishop. He was an, an elder in the church at Smyrna. And he was uh, discovered to be a believer and targeted at one point. And he, at, at a certain stage, he, he did try and hide somewhat, uh, get away from the authorities. But eventually the Roman soldiers caught up to him. So he had his people serve those Roman soldiers a meal first. And, uh, and they just found this so strange. And they looked at him and they observed him as he interacted. And they said, this has got to be false. And they actually delayed his arrest. And at some point they couldn't delay it any longer. So they brought him to the governor in the arena. And the governor told him to deny Christ and he would be spared. When he refused, the governor threatened to burn him at the stake, and they had the whole setup ready right there in front of a large audience. Polycarp said this, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? Polycarp chose to trust in the God who had always been faithful, regardless of how things turned out. And at the age of 86, they tied him to the stake and they burned him alive. When the police arrived at our door and told us that our David was gone, we had a choice to make. We could turn in anger toward God, wave our fists in his face and accuse him of not coming through, of not saving our David here on earth and restoring him to us. We could have chosen to turn our backs on him for betraying our trust in him, for seemingly abandoning us in our hour of need. I think of Job's wife saying, curse God and die. But instead, we chose to trust him. We asked him to give us the strength to honor him, to exalt him, to praise him through our trial. We had to make a determined choice to do that. It didn't come naturally. And God honored that, 
I have never in my entire life been so conscious of his nearness, his presence, his comfort as I was through the days that followed. And I know this was Judy's experience as well. And I need to add that God did answer our prayers. Not the ones for an earthly restoration, but a far more valuable answered prayer, the one for David's salvation. Just a little less than a year ago, David asked God to forgive his sin and be his savior. And I know we will see him again. Let's look at the last portion of this psalm, verses 22 to 31. And I've subtitled this last section, The Psalmist Delights. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. And it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. The psalmist chooses to boldly testify to any who will listen where he finds his delight. When the opportunity presents itself to worship God, he's there worshiping. You had opportunity this morning. You are here. You worshiped him. That was a good choice. The psalmist encourages all those around him to praise him, to worship him, to glorify him. And it would seem that his intent is to keep on praising and worshiping and glorifying so that even the next generation will have clearly heard that the Lord, he is worthy. The Lord, he is faithful. The Lord, he answers prayer. Will this be your story too? Those of you that are followers of Jesus Christ here this morning, we know that we still endure times of deep trial and pain, and at times we doubt. We doubt his goodness. We doubt his faithfulness. We doubt that he hears or answers. Sometimes we doubt that he cares. But in your heart, you know that he is good and faithful, that he hears and he cares, and he answers our prayers. We just need to determinedly choose to trust him, to lean into him, to cling to him, and to wait for an answer. A friend once said to me, if God never does another thing for you for the rest of your life, hasn't he already done enough that we should praise him for the rest of eternity? Can we doubt the love of the one who was willing to leave heaven, to come down to earth, be mocked and scorned and ridiculed, be unjustly tried, beaten, condemned, and sentenced to death on a cross, also that we could be forgiven, redeemed, and justified. 
What greater love is there? And for those of you here that might not be followers of Jesus Christ, I want you to know that this psalm is referred to as a messianic psalm. What that means is that not only was it directly relevant to the writer, the psalmist, David, at the time, but it's prophetic as well. It speaks of the Messiah to come, Jesus Christ. He cried from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He could say, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. You can hear the sarcasm in the words. And that's precisely what they said. This is exactly how Jesus was treated when he hung on the cross for your sin and mine. In fact, the art of crucifixion would not even be refined for several hundred years yet. It was totally unknown at the time that the psalmist penned these words. And yet, execution by crucifixion is described perfectly. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. And further on, he writes, a company of evildoers encircles me. They stood all around at the, basis of the base of the cross. They gloat over me. They divide my garments. Sorry, I missed a line. They pierced my hands and feet. It's exactly what happened to Jesus on the cross. I can count all my bones. That method of execution is known to dislocate the joints. It adds excruciating pain, but draws out the agony because it's not pain that kills. It's just terrible to endure. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. The soldiers at the foot of the cross did exactly that, casting lots for his clothing. It's exactly what Jesus went through, word for word. And when he bore the punishment for our sin at the hands of a righteous and holy God, he cried out in agony, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But here's the difference. There was no answer from heaven for him. There are some who question whether Jesus was really fully human. I think the fact that Jesus was fully human is actually validated in the fact that he experienced the same things that you and I do, that sense of abandonment, that sense of aloneness. The psalmist wrote that God has not despised the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. This was the psalmist's experience. At the very end, when on the horns of the wild ox God answered him, he said, you have not abandoned me. You have not left me alone. You answered me. There was no answer for Jesus. He was forsaken by God. There was no rescue at the 11th hour. He went through it all. He was forsaken by God to provide you and I a way to be right with God. He was forsaken by God so that you and I would never, ever have to be. We can choose to be. If we choose to continue to reject God and His offer, His free offer of salvation, He will honor that request 
And hell is the absence of God for eternity. But it doesn't have to be that way. When we ask God to forgive our sin, we become children of God. We get adopted into his family. And God's Holy Spirit comes to live and reside within us. We will never be abandoned by God. We will never be separated from his presence. But we must take hold of the offer of salvation. You must count the cost and choose Jesus Christ. He will ask you to give him everything. But in return, he will give you his everything. You can't lose. I would plead with you this morning to speak to one of us, myself, Jared, any of the Fellowship Oshawa team, we would be happy to talk to you about how to make that a reality today if it is not already. Let's just pray. Father, as we read through this passage, we realize that there are times in our lives when we struggle, when we face, face doubt and discouragement, a sense of abandonment. And yet your word promises that I will never leave you or forsake you. It may seem that way to us at times, but the truth of your word is that you never do. And when we are children of yours, when we belong to your family, then your spirit resides within us. There is no separating of your presence. You are there with us all the time. We will never, ever experience that full abandonment by you. But it came at great cost. Jesus experienced that abandonment for us. He took the full weight of our sin, the punishment for our offenses against you. He bore it all, and you turned your back on him so that we might be made right with you. Father, this morning, I pray that if there is someone here who doesn't know you, I pray that you would be speaking to their heart this morning, that they would, that they would take care of that situation today, that they would place their faith and trust in you, knowing that you love them and that you have done everything to make it possible for them to be redeemed and restored into an amazing relationship with you. Father, I pray that your name would be glorified this morning. We give you thanks for all that you have done in Jesus Christ's precious name.